Are you someone who, when you see a person in need, desire to go and only do you desire to do that, you actually get up and do something about it? If we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, giving is something that ought to characterize us all. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus Christ gave himself. God the Father gave his Son to redeem us from sin and hell. If we have truly been on the receiving end of such a gift, having received it by faith, we can never be the same. That will transform you. The overwhelming reality that Almighty God the Son became a man so that he could die on a cross to pay for your sins, drinking the wrath of God in your place, and rise from the dead to give you eternal life, that reality should so overwhelm and humble you that you will want to spend the rest of your life giving of yourself to others so that they might come to know the one who gave more than anyone ever could. When Paul was trying to motivate the believers in Corinth to give, that is the picture of giving that he set before them, the picture of Christ giving himself, becoming poor so that they might become rich. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This morning in Ruth, chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, we are going to see some pictures of giving that will prompt us to look at that ultimate picture of giving we see in Christ. May the Lord use his word this morning to make us the giving people that he wants us to be. Last week, we saw the narrator give us some inside information about a man named Boaz. And by telling us that this man was a kinsman of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth or a man of great honor, and by telling us that he was of the family of Elimelech, the narrator was indicating to us that there was someone out there who had the legal standing, the material resources, and the willing heart to be a potential kinsman redeemer for Naomi and for Ruth. Things were not as hopeless as they seemed. Then, in those first three verses, we witnessed how God providentially guided Ruth to glean in a field owned by this very same man, a man that Ruth had no idea even existed prior to what we'll read about in the coming weeks. As we come into the next portion of this chapter, we are going to see God's providence continue to be at work. Not only did God, by his providence, bring Ruth to that field owned by that man, but we're going to see his providence continue to be at work. He's going to continue to give to Ruth and Naomi by his providence. And when we come to verses 4 through 7, we see God's providence continue to give. We see God's providential gift in verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He starts out by saying, Now behold, that's an expression of amazement. He wants us to be excited at, at what we're about to read. He says, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. 
So the very one who is a potential redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, the very one who has the qualifications and the means and the willingness to be that redeemer, the very one to whose field Ruth has unwittingly come, this same one comes from Bethlehem while Ruth is there. Is that a coincidence? What do you think, judging from what we looked at last week? Is that a coincidence? No, it's not. God is bringing all of this about. Now, in the book of Ruth, the narrator uses dialogue to reveal to us who these people are that we're meeting throughout the course of this true story. He uses the way they talk and what they say to reveal their character to us. Every word spoken by them that we have recorded for us in this book is important and meaningful. So we need to listen to what this man says to discover more about him. And what are the first words he says? He prays a blessing in the name of Yahweh and the name of the Lord to those who are working for him. He says, may the Lord be with you. And you get the sense that this is not a throwaway greeting coming from this man. He is the type of man who genuinely means what he says. And how do his workers respond? They say, may the Lord bless you. They pray a blessing in return upon Boaz. And again, you get the sense that they mean it because he's the kind of boss that you genuinely want the Lord to bless. Now, what does this tell you about this man? What does this back and forth between him and his workers tell you about this man? Well, he's a man of faith in the one true God. It is in the name of the Lord that he asks for blessing upon his workers. He's a man who cares about the livelihood of his workers. And he's a man who is respected by his workers. He is a good man. And if the narrator got our hopes up in verses 1 through 3, that this man will come into the lives of Naomi and Ruth, seeing verse 4, that he is a good man, that is only raising our excitement even further. We are hoping that he and Ruth meet, aren't we? So Boaz comes from Bethlehem to this field, and he notices a, wo a woman working in his fields whom he has not seen before. And so he asks the man he's placed as supervisor over the reapers who this woman is. And more specifically, he asks whose she is. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Again, this is a patriarchal society. Women were not living on their own. If a woman was unmarried, she was living in a household, in the household of her father. If a woman was married, she was living in the household of her husband. So when Boaz asks, Whose young woman is this? He's asking either who her father is or who her husband is in order to find out who she is. And because Ruth is not living in either the household of her father, because she has forsaken her parents' house, and she's not living in the household of her husband because her husband has died, the servant has to describe her in another way, which he does in verse 6. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Then the servant tells Boaz what she requested and what she did. 
verse 7. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. I want to just pause a moment on this verse. My translation, and probably yours as well, has her asking this. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. A sheaf is uh, some grain stalks that have been bundled together and tied together. And that tied bundle is a sheaf. My translation has her asking, let me gather among the sheaves. It is probably better translated, and it can be translated this way, please let me glean and gather into sheaves. What's the difference? Well, again, sheaves were the grain stalks that had been cut and bundled and tied together. Turn with me over to Deuteronomy 24. This seems like a dumb thing to just dig into, but it it bears implications for the rest of the passage, so I need to take some time here. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19. We looked at this last week, but let's look at it again. This is the law making provision for gleaners so that they could be for the poor so that they could be provided for. When you reap your harvest in your field, and have forgotten a sheaf in the field. So what is that describing? Someone has harvested a field, they've moved on from that field, and they look back and they see that they forgot a bundle of grain that had been tied together. They forgot it laying in that field. What are they not to do? They're not to go back and get it. Why? It's to be left for the gleaners who come in after the harvest has been done, completed in that portion of the field, and it's to be for them. You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So that verse would seem to indicate that the gleaners would only come into an area once the reapers had moved on from that area with the harvest that they had gathered. They would move on, the gleaners would come in and pick up what had been forgotten or what had been left over. Gleaners were probably prohibited from going into the area where harvest work was still being done, where bundles of grain were still being tied into sheaves and laid down in order to be transported once they were done with that portion of the field. To ask to glean among the sheaves would have been a pretty presumptuous and nosy thing to do. If Ruth is seeing the harvest work being done and saying, hey, let me go to that work area and let me nose around in between the sheaves that have been bundled up, that would be a presumptuous thing for her to ask. It's more likely that Ruth is asking to glean, that is to pick up leftovers, that which has been forgotten, that which has been left behind after the workers have moved on, to go and pick up the leftovers and gather into sheaves those leftovers. Do you see the distinction I'm making here? Sort of. Well, that's better than I expected I'd be able to do. So <laughs> I need to move on, though, so ask me later. So I'm just saying that I don't think she's asking to get in on the harvesting action. 
which is not something a gleaner would do. I'm, I think she's asking, let me, after they've har harvested, let me go and pick up the leftovers. That's the, the gist of what I'm trying to say. And apparently the supervisor had given her permission to do just that. And she had been hard at work all morning, according to Ruth 2, verse 7. But at this moment, the moment of Boaz's asking, she has happened to be taking a momentary break. And again, that is the providence of God, that she would be taking a rare break at the very moment Boaz came and had opportunity to notice her. Because she's been working hard all morning. She's not one to take a lot of breaks. So we see God's providence at work to provide, to give to this woman and the woman she's taking care of, Naomi. When we come to verses 8 through 17, we begin to see portraits of giving. We're going to see foreshadowings of the greatest giver, the Lord Jesus. Boaz, after all, is the ancestor of who? The Lord Jesus, which we will find out at the end of this book. So I want you to keep your eye out for some echoes of our Savior in these people that we're meeting here. Um, so let's first look at verses 8 through 10. And I want you to see if you can see echoes of Jesus in the actions of Boaz. Verses 8 through 10. So what is Boaz going to do? This servant has just told him who this woman is. And Boaz knows, even though Ruth doesn't know who he is, Boaz knows who he is. He knows who he is in relation to Naomi. And he's just been told that this woman is the woman who came back with Naomi, the woman that he is related to through her husband. Now that he has this information, what is he going to do? Verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Now we, because we're not familiar with the agricultural practices of the time, we read that and we just think, Okay, so what? Uh, why is he spilling ink telling us about this? Why is he giving us this detail? Well, we're going to see how Ruth reacts to what Boaz just said. And how does she react? Does she just say, oh, thank you? No, in verse 10, she falls on her face. So what Boaz is telling her in verses 8 and 9, he is going above and beyond what she expected. He is giving her more than a normal gleaner would have been, ex been able to expect from those who owned the fields that he would glean in. So Boaz here is going above and beyond for Ruth. It's important that we understand that. Otherwise, we're not going to catch the significance of what we're reading. So first of all, in verse 8, Boaz addresses her as his what? His daughter. So immediately, you get the sense that he's older than her, and that he intends to protect and provide for her as a, as a father would his own daughter. And then what does he do? He instructs her to only do her gleaning work in his field and to make sure that she does not cross over from his field into someone else's field. 
Now, why would he say that? Well, the commentator Frederick Bush, he helpfully pointed out that as we continue, we're going to see that what Boaz is going to give Ruth access to is access to more of the harvest than a normal gleaner would have access to. So if she takes Boaz's instructions and begins gleaning more than a gleaner would normally be allowed to do, if she accidentally drifts over into someone else's field and continues to glean like that, what's going to happen to her? She's going to get into a lot of trouble. She's going to be accused of stealing that other owner's grain. So Boaz says, stay in my field. Don't go over into another field. He tells her to make sure she stays in his field, and he tells her to stay with his maids or his young women. These young women were likely those who would take the bundles of grain from the men. You can only hold so much in your hand as you're reaping. They would, after they were holding too much to carry, they would give it to the women, and the women would take that and they would tie it into sheaves. That's what the work of, of the young women was in the harvest. And Boaz instructs Ruth to stay with those women. That's what he says at the end of verse 8. Stay here with my maids. Now the word for stay is the same word that was used back in chapter 1, verse 14, where it is said that Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye, but Ruth, what? What did Ruth do? Clung. She clung to Naomi. That's the word, clung. It's the same word used in Genesis 2, verse 24, to describe a man being joined to his wife or cleaving to his wife. This word means to stick to, to cling to, to cleave to, to hold to. Boaz is telling Ruth to cling to his female workers. Now, by giving her this instruction, Boaz is likely giving her unprecedented access to his harvest. She doesn't need to wait for the harvest workers to clear out before she starts gleaning. She's being allowed to glean in the area where the harvest work is still going on. And Ruth is to keep an eye on where Boaz's workers are harvesting so that she doesn't wander off into someone else's field. And she's to closely follow his female workers. Not only that, but in verse 9, Boaz gives her permission to drink water from what the servants, that's Boaz's male workers, the word there is for male servants, young men, he's giving her permission to drink water from what they draw. And again, that seems highly unusual. That water was intended for the servants, the workers, the reapers, the, one who were, the ones who were hired to bring in the harvest. And normally, who draws water for who? The women would draw water for the men. To allow a woman, and a woman who was a foreigner, and a woman who was a foreign gleaner, to drink from the water that the male servants drew for themselves was extraordinarily generous. Now, as I mentioned before, it is obvious that Boaz is going above and beyond what Ruth had asked for because of how she reacts. How does she react? Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? 
She's totally blown away by what Boaz has done for her. What was she hoping? Do you remember back in verse 2? What, did she, what was her plan? She said, Please to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She was just hoping someone would be allowing her, willing to allow her to glean in their field, that they would show her enough favor to just let her pick up the scraps. But instead, she is being given the means to provide far more than that for herself and Naomi. The favor that she is experiencing is far and away more than she could have hoped for. And so she asks, why? This man who's doing this for her is a complete stranger to her. As far as Ruth knows, she has no connection to this man. Not only that, but she's a foreigner. There's even less reason for this man to notice her than there would be for him to notice any other poor gleaner who was a native. Why is, why is he doing this for her? Now, I want to pause here and think about our Savior. The actions of Boaz and Ruth's response to him provide us with such a beautiful foreshadowing of Boaz's greater descendant, Jesus, and our response to him. Think about when God convicts us of our sin. And we come to realize for the first time that we are slaves of sin, that we are, as Paul describes us in Ephesians 2, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When we come to that realization for the first time and we repent of our sins and we come to faith in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Son of Man, who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin and who rose from the dead, when we come to that realization, when we come to that place for the first time, what do we do? We come humbly, tremblingly. When we know we deserve his wrath, we come asking forgiveness. We come asking him to have mercy on us, asking him to show us just enough favor to save us from his wrath and from our sin. But then what does Jesus do? Does he only give us that much? No. Paul, in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, speaks of how God does more abundantly beyond all that we asked for or, or, or that we thought he would be willing to do. When we come to Christ in faith, seeking his pardon, seeking grace, seeking his unmerited favor, he not only forgives us, but he clothes us with his righteousness. According to John 1.12, he gives us the right to become children of God. According to Hebrews 2, verse 11, he makes us and is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. According to Romans 8.17, he makes us co-heirs with himself. And according to Revelation 3, verses 5 and 21, he confesses our names before his Father. And he gives us a seat on his throne alongside himself. He does all of that for us, even though we were far more unworthy in his eyes than Ruth was in Boaz's eyes. As we will see next, though Ruth saw herself as unworthy, Boaz 
indicates that he sees her as very worthy. But you and I need to remember that is not how Christ sees us, is it? Are we worthy of the favor he lavishes upon us? No, we are not. Ephesians 2 says, when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. Christ knows that we are not worthy. There's nothing in us that would draw his attention toward us. Because of our sin, we are rebels, we are criminals, we are children of wrath. And yet, this Redeemer lavishes his grace upon us. So as favored as Ruth felt at Boaz's generosity, how much more favored ought you and I to feel about Jesus' generosity toward us? So can you see Jesus here in Boaz's actions toward Ruth? Now, verses 11 through 13, this is a challenging question, and I'm asking it of myself more than I am of you, but can you see yourself in what we're about to look at in verses 11 through 13? So in verse 10, Ruth asks, why? Why are you showing me this favor? Well, Boaz explains why he's showing her such favor. Verses 11 to 12. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. I want you to notice, first of all, what Boaz does not say. When Ruth asks, why are you doing this for me? He doesn't say, I'm the relative of Naomi's husband. That's why I'm helping you out. Your family, that's why I'm helping you out. Notice that Boaz's answer to Ruth still leaves her in the dark as to who he is in relation to her mother-in-law. She still doesn't know there's any connection between Naomi and this man. And it suggests, Boaz's answer of why he's doing this suggests that he's not doing it merely out of some sense of family obligation. What is the reason he gives for why he's doing this for Ruth? It has been fully reported to him all that Ruth has done for her mother-in-law after the death of her husband. Ruth left everything. She left her parents, she left her country, and she came to a strange people in order to continue showing loving kindness to her mother-in-law. So, Boaz is blowing Ruth's mind by his generosity to her because what? Because she first blew his mind by her generosity to Naomi. That's why he's doing this. Boaz is giving to Ruth out of the overflow of his abundance in order to bless Ruth, who gave out of her what? Her poverty. Boaz, who highly values what God values, highly values what Ruth has done for Naomi. He recognizes how much she gave to her mother-in-law. And he prays that the Lord will give Ruth a full reward for what she has done. Boaz recognizes that Ruth has come to seek refuge under the wings or under the protection of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Now, it's not expressly said in so many words, but how else could Ruth have given so extravagantly out of her poverty to a woman who could give her nothing in return if she had not first put her trust in the God who could protect her? Remember back to Orpah. You have Orpah and Ruth. They've got the same set of circumstances, the same prospects for the future, no hope from this woman that they love, and yet their reactions are totally different. Orpah goes back to her people and to her gods, whereas Ruth sticks it out with Naomi. And what is included in, in, in Ruth's commitment to Naomi? Your God will be my God. Why would she make that kind of commitment if she did not trust that God was somehow going to pull through and enable her to carry out her commitment to Naomi? Boaz recognizes that she has come and sought refuge under the wings, under the protection of the God of Israel. And so he prays that this God will bless this woman who has staked her life on the God of Israel. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Ruth here expresses her appreciation for what Boaz has just done for her. Boaz has shown her favor. He has comforted her. He has spoken kindly to her. Literally, he has spoken to her heart. And she calls herself Boaz's what? Maidservant or slave girl. Ruth is recognizing that Boaz is way higher up on the social scale than she is, which is what makes his actions toward her so shocking. And the word slave girl isn't even a low enough word for Ruth to express her shock that Boaz would notice someone like her, because what does she say? You have spoken kindly to your maidservant, to your slave girl, though I am not like one of your slave girls. She calls herself a slave girl who is lower on the social scale than the rest of the slave girls who are Israelites. As in Boaz, we saw a picture of the generosity of Christ. So here in Ruth, we find a lesson for ourselves as believers. We find in Ruth's actions that Boaz is acknowledging that she gave all for her mother-in-law. We are finding here a picture of how we as believers are to conduct ourselves as God's people. Ruth had no money to give to Naomi. How do I know that? Because she's gleaning for food. She had nothing to give to Naomi. So what did she give? She gave herself to Naomi. Boaz was giving to Ruth out of his abundance, but like the widow who put her two mites into the treasury and in so doing gave all that she had, so Ruth had literally given everything she had to Naomi. Ruth had given her her very self. Is that not how we are called to love one another? 1 John 3 Verse 16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And the Bible promises us that if we give to one another like that, 
we are promised a blessing. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. We're going to see that promise be realized in Ruth's life as Boaz pours into her lap more than than she knows what to do with. How can we follow that example? I don't know about you, but I am selfish. It is very hard for me to give of myself to someone else. How can we follow that example? Well, how is it that Ruth could be so generous to Naomi? And again, I think we see the answer implied in what Boaz said a little earlier. She had sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. When you make the Lord God your refuge, you can be extravagantly generous with your life because you are hiding yourself in the one who is your ultimate security. You're not looking for security in your energy or your resources or your time. You are looking for security in your God who can never be diminished. And so you can pour yourself out totally and know that you're going to be okay because you are taking refuge in your God. Turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, which speaks of the righteous, those who are trusting in God. David gives his observations about the life of such a one. Psalm 37, verse 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he, this man, falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Why? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And now listen to David's observation in verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long, he, the righteous man, is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Despite the generosity of the righteous man, David has never seen that man begging for bread because the Lord God is holding that man's hand. Do we trust God enough to be generous like Ruth was generous to Naomi? Now, this is not some pitch to you to boost your tithe. I'm not even talking about money here. I'm talking about giving of yourself to one another. Your time, your energy, your resources, your presence, your prayers, your service, and your love. That's what I'm talking about. Ruth had no money to give. She gave something much more valuable herself. Are we giving like that? So can you see yourself? Can you see the qualities of Ruth being worked into your life more and more by the Holy Spirit of God? I've got a long way to go myself. Next, verses 14 to 17. Let me ask the question that has already been asked. Can you see Jesus here? In, his, in the actions of his ancestor. Verse 14, Boaz is not done blowing the mind of Ruth by his generosity. 
At mealtime, Boaz said to her, said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Boaz invites Ruth, a gleaner, a foreign gleaner, to eat lunch with his workers, his hired workers. And again, that was probably very unusual for a gleaner to have the privilege of doing. And then this man, the owner of the field, serves her roasted grain. He is serving her lunch. And he gives her so much roasted grain that she is satisfied and has enough left over to wrap up and take home to Naomi. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, or even between the sheaves, and do not insult her. So after her meal, Ruth gets up to get back to work. So Boaz, he makes sure that his workers are all on the same page as to what he is allowing this woman to do. He is going to let her glean even among or between the sheaves. So he tells his workers to let her do this. Let her glean even among or between the sheaves and do not insult her. So he's instructing his workers to allow Ruth to have access to an area that gleaners likely were not typically allowed access to. They are to let her come into the areas where harvest work is still going on and to even gather from in between the grain stalks that have been cut up, bundled up, and tied into sheaves. So she can go and nose around in between what belongs to Boaz from the harvest. Normally, if any random gleaner just came and was found nosing around the actual sheaves that had been harvested, the workers would rightly shoo such a person away. They would be protecting the, owner, uh, the owner's property from theft. You know, at, at my former employer, Critter Ritters, there was a man who would come and dumpster dive for cans behind the building. That was like him gleaning from the fields. Well, what would I have done if I saw him go into the building and start nosing around the equipment and, and stuff? What would my responsibility be? I'd say, sir, this is not yours. Please, you have to, you have to leave. But Boaz is saying, no, you let her nose around my building, if you will. You let her take what's there. They're not to shoo Ruth away. Not only that, but verse 16. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. Now that is really over the top. They are to purposely... So they've, they've cut the stalks, they've bundled it up and tied it together, and Boaz says, now you are to pull some out and leave it on the ground so that she can get, get that as well. And again, they're not to discourage her from taking advantage of this. So what is Boaz doing? He is making certain that Ruth will have plenty of food. And notice, wouldn't it be easier if Boaz just took some grain that was already gathered, already threshed, and just gave it to her. Well, he doesn't do her the indignity of 
denying her the opportunity to work for her own food. He's simply making sure that she has every opportunity to get all that her hard work will allow her to get. There wasn't really much welfare programs going on right then. And I think this is probably a wiser way to handle those types of things. Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So Ruth, she worked hard. She kept gleaning until evening after Boaz had made sure that there would be plenty for her to glean from. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, which would have involved her using a wooden instrument to beat the grain with in order to separate the barley kernels from their husks. And what she ended up with was an ephah of barley. I don't know how much that is, so I, I read commentators, and the ones I looked at said that an ephah of barley would have weighed 29 pounds. That's a lot of barley. So Ruth was able to glean, because of Boaz's generosity, around 30 pounds of barley. And that's probably an amount no gleaner could have ever hoped to gather in just one day's work. Now, as Boaz continued to show favor to Ruth, I could not help but think of who? Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Specifically, I'm thinking about when Boaz was serving food to Ruth. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus there, in instructing his disciples, he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he, the master, will gird himself to serve and have them, his slaves, recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. Boaz waited on and served Ruth, who saw herself as lower than a slave to this man. He served her food, more than she needed to eat. And as Boaz did that to Ruth, who in her own eyes was less than a slave compared to him, so Christ at his return will wait on us, we who are so unworthy not even worthy to call ourselves his slaves, not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He will gird himself to serve, and he will wait on us. How can that be? What kind of grace is that? That is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please forgive us when we think we are worthy of the grace that you have lavished upon us. Lord, we are not worthy. We are not even worthy, as John the Baptist said, we're not even worthy to be your slave. We're not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of your sandals. And yet, not only have you made us your slaves by redeeming us, 
But Father, you've made us your sons in our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but when he returns, when our master returns, he will wait on his slaves. It's all of grace. It's not anything we deserve. We deserve one thing, and that is your wrath. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Help us to see how unworthy we are so that we may marvel at how extraordinary your grace is and sing your praises for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.